first in my heart, Lord, that I might be set aside. Father, that you might speak through me. And Father, that each of our hearts might be open to you, Father, and to your word. Father, we think of several who are in need of prayer this morning. We think of, of Brian and Ann McLaughlin. We, we praise you and thank you, Father, for the birth of Logan. We pray, Lord, for, for the family, Lord, that you would encourage them, give strength, Lord, to little Logan and to Ann, and give special grace, Lord, to Brian as he tries to help and care for the needs there. Father, we think of Ben Dora, who continues to have some, some problems, Lord, because of uh, the heart situation. We pray, Lord, for wisdom for him, Lord, that he might be able to get the, the right uh, advice that you give the doctor's wisdom. Father, we think also of Annalita Leatherwood as she uh, is struggling with the loss of kidneys. We pray for her, Lord, that you would open doors, Lord, for a kidney and just that you would give her strength and grace. And Father, we think also of Carmelo Flores, who lost his father uh, this week and who is in Puerto Rico. We pray for he and for Maria that you be with them that you encourage them, that you give them special grace, Lord, during this time. Father, that they might, in a wonderful way, sense your blessing and your power, Lord, to share the gospel with those who don't know you. But Father, as we look at the passage today, Lord, in Titus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. We ask, God, that you would use your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if I were to... Give the sermon on title today, uh, I'd probably say, Saved by Grace to Do Good Works. And I thought, eh, maybe once saved, always changed. Once saved, always changed. Many of you probably have heard the, the saying, once saved, always saved. I remember as a new believer some 33 years ago that I came to Christ and as we studied the Word, I, I heard, well, once you have trusted Christ, because the Spirit of God lives within you, you're saved. And as we went on through Bible college and went to seminary and come here, we hear that term. But one thing I noticed, sometimes there were people who would use this slogan, and it seemed almost uh, a way to justify lives that... On Dolly. Maybe justifying someone who walked the aisle. Maybe someone who prayed a prayer. Or made a confession of, of, of faith. It just seems sometimes maybe that once saved, always saved. It's true, but maybe the precision there is maybe missing a little bit. Warren Wiersbe uh, warns us, he says, there are many professors who are not possessors. He says, a Christian is not sinless, but he does sin less. Chris's grandmother, who has died, would go to church every Sunday. Chris barely knew her because of her lifestyle. Only God knows her heart, but we never saw any fruit in her life that she was a believer. Second Timothy 2.19 says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Titus 1-2 talks about that knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. 
the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Again, maybe we could say, once saved, always changed. Because those whom God saves, he also sanctifies. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This whole struggle with walking with God and with being aware of our, of our sinfulness and allowing the, the world around us, the culture around us to affect us has caused people to do different things. Some people in history have chosen to retreat because they didn't want the world to affect them and its wickedness. We can quickly think of Catholic uh, monks who retreat into monasteries. But if we're honest and look closer to home, Years ago, the evangelicals and fundamentalists separated themselves from the world in a sense. And in the midst of it, they no longer were involved. And only recently are we beginning to be involved in, 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 in so much, whether it's um, medical service across the world or in education or in the media, with TV, with writing. We know that that's not the answer. There are others who tried to force Christianity on others. Those who come and take control. We think of Charlemagne in the 18, around 800, rather, who conquered Europe. We know of other inquisitions, but for the most part, people's lives aren't changed through inquisitions. In reality, Scripture is very clear that Christianity is spread as believers live godly lives making the gospel attractive to onlookers. Chapter 3, with chapter 3, this has been a great book to go through, at least for Pastor Eric and I. We're talking this week. We've loved it. We've loved it. Kind of hate to be, be finishing up today. But chapter 3 of Titus continues that theme we've been looking at, that God's truth changes lies. The knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. In chapter 1, Paul gave instructions to Titus regarding the church. If you remember, he talked about the elders and how they were to be sound in doctrine. And not only sound, but they were able to refute false teachers. Chapter 2, Paul gave instructions to the, the family, to husband and wife and to to all the various age levels within the church. And then the end of it gave the basis for that, salvation through Christ. In chapter 3, we're looking today at the believer and his responsibilities to the world. Paul develops that along the way. In verses 1 and 2, Paul instructs Titus to remind the believers to remember their duties to the rulers and to the general public, they'd already heard it. He says, remind them. They knew it. But you see, we as believers, sometimes we know truths, we hear the truth, but we forget. I'm reminded in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, over and over, there are instructions, there are warnings to not forget the Lord 
your God who brought you out of Egypt. There are warnings that once you have moved in and built your home and you are comfortable, once your herds and your flocks have increased and your silver and gold have increased, to be careful and don't become proud. But to remember, remember it's God who gives you the ability to make wealth. We could go on and on in the New Testament the same way. Let's quickly just look at verses 1 and 2 again of chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We see here, first, Paul says, remember your duties to the public. Remember your duties to rulers. Submit. He says, submit. Be obedient. Let's remember, the island of Crete was taken over by various groups, but here, during the time of Roman, and there was that tension, if you read books outside of the the Bible, there's that tension because they did not want to give in. And yet, Scripture says, submit and obey. Paul also gives instructions to the believers regarding gracious speech. He says, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect, perfect courtesy toward all people. We as believers, just as the believers in, on the Isle of Crete, are to be gracious in our speech. Thirdly, finally, he says in this two, two verses here, he talks about being ready for every good work. Being ready for every good work. Just a general summary of how our lives should be. God wants us to be a light in the dark world by living godly lives and doing good works. Most of you know I grew up down south in Alabama, and my mother had eight children. My mother was a great cook. She could cook a biscuit that was wonderful. She cooked for 20, 25 people, no problem. My mother, because she had eight children, she didn't have the time to make all the dishes look really nice and pretty. I remember coming here to Chicago some 28, 29, 30 years ago, and I remember looking at some of the Puerto Rican foods I'd never eaten, and I, I wasn't sure I wanted to eat some of those things. You know, if, if you know me now, I love flan. I love a good hiburrito. I don't think there's any Puerto Rican food that I don't love. But you know, when I have a chance, and it hasn't been much lately, I like to watch the cooking shows on TV. It's amazing how they put such effort into making the dish look attractive. Notice that? They're concerned about the plate, they're concerned about the size, the color. Because I've heard that we first eat with our eyes. Different ones of us, children especially, but sometimes some of us older 
people look at food and we won't even give it a chance. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. Well, appearance is important for food, but appearance is important for the gospel. Just as appearance is the first thing to attract someone to a meal, maybe. Outsiders first are reminded or drawn to the gospel by attractive lives. Paul, in, in chapter 2, talks about the gospel and our lives being an adornment, a jewelry, so to speak. St. Francis, Francis of Sissy said, preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. Well, that's not what God's word says. I, I think I get his point. He's saying we should live the gospel. People should see Christ in us. Too often our culture influences us far more than we realize. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about not being conformed to the, the pattern of this, this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Sometimes members of the church have come to me and they have different concerns. And Facebook. Facebook is wonderful. I love it. For years I didn't get involved. Finally, uh, Benjamin Rosado one day said, Ralph, I'm going to set you up. I've been prayed for a year. I wanted to do it. I love it. It's wonderful. Now, I don't spend the time that a lot of you do, but it's a great way to connect. You know, over the last year or two, I've had people come to me, and I always suggest they go back, and I encourage them to go back and talk to people. But sometimes people have looked on Facebook pages, and they've seen some vulgar words and some not-so-nice pictures. But on the same Facebook page, they've got pictures of them working at Good News, being involved in things here. Not too good, maybe. Sometimes you see the partying and uh, the drinking goes beyond what it should be. Again, sometimes pictures connected with Good News. Sometimes I've had people tell me that someone they love will say the right things at church. But then they go on Facebook and they say things that aren't too nice. See, this is a, clearly a disconnect with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If God saves us, if God saves us, our lives can't be characterized by debauchery. Our lives can't be characterized by immorality. I saw a, a, a report on CNN, I think it's in 2007, over 40% of all children born in the United States are born out of wedlock. And in some communities, almost 70% are born out of wedlock. And yet, our nation says we're a Christian nation. Of course, many aren't. The whole point, though, is there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect when we talk vulgar and yet claim the name of Jesus Christ. Because Christ changes us. Our faith must be seen. Our faith must be seen before it is heard. In order to be gracious and to compassionate with non-believers, Paul instructs the church in Crete to remember their past, their depravity, their need for salvation. He kind of reminds me, he says, don't be, don't be arrogant. 
Don't be arrogant. Remember. Remember your past. Remember where you were. Remember your depravity. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's pretty strong, isn't it? It's pretty strong. That's who we were. If we're in Christ, that's who we were. I know a lady that I love dearly. She's not from here. She's back in Alabama. She loved Kay Arthur. Now, you may not know who Kay Arthur is, but she's a, a, a lady who used to be on Moody Radio, and she's tremendous ministry called Precepts, teaching people how to study God's Word. And this woman loved Kay Arthur. She loved to hear her speak. Until one day, Kay gave her testimony. If you know Kay's testimony, it was kind of like I just read. She came to Christ out of immorality. It wasn't a very pretty picture, like most of our lives before Christ. Now, after the woman heard that, she says, I, I don't like Kay Arthur. I just can't believe that that's the way she was. See, we don't necessarily, we may not have lived all that. That's who we were in our hearts. Paul, in a way, he warns us and he says, be careful, be careful. Verse 3 is so very clear that our lives pre-Christ were not pretty pictures. We see first our character. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, and led astray. We're foolish, rebellious, ignorant of the truth. Secondly, we were in bondage, we're enslaved to lust or the flesh. And third, we were mean-spirited. We were mean-spirited toward others. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Jealousy, envy. It's important that we remember that we were once far from God. But in His mercy, in His mercy, He reached down and he saved us. No one ever decides to be good. I'm sorry, we don't. We don't. It's God's grace that changes us. And his grace alone. Before Chris's father, Chris, my wife, was father, before he was saved, he cursed a lot. Now, I didn't hear him, but they say he cursed a lot. He drank a good bit. He smoked a lot of cigarettes. He did a lot of other things. Somewhere along the way, George Lawrence came to Jesus Christ. His life changed. He no longer cursed. He no longer partied. He lived for the Lord. Here's a man who cursed so much, Chris's younger sister, Karen, was about three years old. She would call the dog by cursing. God reaches down 
in our depraved lives, he changes us. We were this, but in Christ, we are righteous. One of Mr. Lawrence's friends, a good friend who knew him well, this to me says so much. He said, if God can change George Lawrence, he can change anybody. If God can change George Lawrence, he can change anybody. You know, people back in Alabama who knew me because of my drugs and alcohol, you know, they were were shocked that Ralph Edmonds, trusted Christ, he's a Christian, He's he's a preacher. You see, God reaches down to the most depraved people. He saves us. He changes our lives. Do we still sin? Yes. But as Warren Wiersbe says, we sin a lot less. Remember your past. You may not have done all these things that some of us have done, but see, your heart was still just as depraved. Don't fool ourselves. Our lives change when we come to Christ. The Spirit of God enables us to change. Well, Paul first has said, remember your duties to the world. Secondly, he says, remember your past, your depravity. And then he moves from our depravity to our salvation. Verses 4 and 5, you'll read with me. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Paul here moves from our depravity to our salvation. I'm reminded of so many passages that talk about our need for salvation, and how none of us seek after him. Romans 3 says there are none that are righteous. There are none righteous. And no one seeks after God. No one. Over and over I've heard people talk, and we kind of think that we're again searching for God. We don't. The Bible's clear. No one. No one seeks after God. Ephesians says he chose us before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless in Christ. As a teenager and a young adult before I came to Christ, I still remember very clearly lying in my bed in my house, afraid to go to sleep because I was afraid to go to hell. I knew if I died in my sleep, I'd go to hell. Did I change? No. No. I kept on living my depraved lifestyle. It wasn't until I was age 25 that I yielded my life to the Lord. You see, it worked in my heart and my life. And I thank God that he continued to pursue me. Sometimes that's not the case. A friend of of Chris's uh, father 
would have these nightmares. He would wake up dreaming he was in fire, on fire. And his wife said because he was fearing hell. This happened over and over and over and over. The man never yielded his life to Jesus Christ. He never did, even though he had those horrible, horrible, horrible nightmares. Well, no one comes to God. It's God always who initiates. It's always God. Always. From the foundation of the world. He is the one. So if God saves us, what's the basis for being able to forgive us? Verse 4 says he saved us not because of our righteousness, but because of God's mercy. Ephesians 2 is a powerful chapter. It, it talks about the fact that we were dead. Dead spiritually. Dead. Not kind of alive, but dead. You know, dead persons can't respond very well, right? No. We were dead. But, but verse 5 says, but. But God. We were dead, but God, in his mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. It's not our righteousness that saves us. Isaiah says that our good works are like what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. He saved us not because of our goodness, because we went to church or because we were members or whatever. He saved us because of his mercy. God looked down at a depraved and hopeless people. He had mercy on us. We did absolutely nothing. God does not save us simply because of his mercy, but because of what his mercy led him to do. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. We look toward this Friday, with Good Friday, when Christ, when the cross died, and then Sunday, Resurrection Day, when he arose. You see, it was not just that God had mercy, but he sent, he sent his son, to die for you and for me. Isaiah 53 describes it. He says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you probably know by heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 1 Corinthians 15 just kind of gives you the gospel in a, in a verse or two. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that, on, that he was raised on the third day, according to scriptures. Think about it. Think about it. God, in his mercy, initiated saving us. It was, it was God. He planted before the foundation of the world. When you think of salvation, remember, God initiated it. The grounds for our salvation is God's mercy, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The means of salvation we see 
In verse 5, it says, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. Based on whether you have NIV or ESV, it's either your washing of regeneration or cleansing. And this just simply means that our sins have been washed away. Our sins have been washed away. The washing of rebirth or uh, um, rebirth is in NIV and regeneration is in ESV. But what does it mean? It, Christ used the word when he was looking to the future and talking about um, when he would come and reign. He talked about things being new. In the individual sense, as it's used here, we can look to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New creation. I remember when I came to Christ, and I still struggled. And I had this verse. It's a reminder that I was no longer the wrath heavens of the old. That was a new creation. New. A new man. With new purpose. New reason for living. The renewal is very similar to, to the rebirth and regeneration. Just, just a kind of a, a recapsuling it. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the agent which saves us by which we're reborn, regenerated, renewed, God has generously poured out His Spirit upon those who have trusted Jesus Christ, His Savior. And salvation means more than that inward rebirth and renewal. It includes having been justified by this grace. Verse 7 says, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. Justification is when God legally declares that we're righteous because of the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. Regeneration means that he makes us righteous because the Spirit lives within us. You see here in salvation, you see the work of the Trinity. You see God the Father as the initiator. It's he who's poured out his Spirit. Is he the, is the one who initiated the process back in the past. Of course, God the Son, our Savior, died on the cross for us and arose. And God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who enters into our lives and regenerates and changes us, renews us. The source for salvation is God. He's the initiator. Because of God's mercy in sending Jesus Christ that we're saved. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit that we're regenerated, given new life. Then the goal of salvation is that we'll be heirs with Christ. And it says here in verse 7, So being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We become heirs, heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And as heirs, we look forward to that day when we receive that inheritance, eternal life. 
unbroken fellowship with God. Now, my mother and father died. They weren't wealthy. They didn't leave me a whole lot, except for the love that they gave me when they were here. I know of a, of a lady whose father was a millionaire. Her mother died. Her father remarried. Her father rewrote the will. Her father left her out. She was looking to get millions. She struggled with anger and bitterness. She thought that she had an inheritance coming, but she didn't. The great thing is heirs of Christ, heirs of God, is that we are assured of it because of God's promises. Says in, in Titus one, talking about that the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Ephesians one says, when you heard the gospel and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire that possession. We're saved by grace because of God's mercy by the Holy Spirit. We become heirs. What is the evidence? What is the evidence that we are believers? I mentioned earlier, once saved, always saved. A lot of truth there. What is the evidence? When the, in the following section, Paul makes clear that believers must devote themselves to good works. He says, I want, talking to Titus, he says, I want you to insist on, I want you to stress these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul insists that we as believers must live godly lives. We're not saved by good works. They're the evidence. They're the fruit of being in Christ. Well, throughout the, the book of Titus, as we've gone through it, good works has been there. That exemplary behavior, that difference that Christ makes in our lives. In chapter 1, 16, verse 16, there's a, a, a strong contrast. It's talking about the false teachers. And it says, you know, that there were these horrible guys, really. And it says that they were unfit for any good work. Unfit for any good work. And yet... Throughout Titus, throughout the pastoral epistles, you see good works used over and over. In 2.7 it says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus 2.14, Christ redeemed us to, to be zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, to be submissive, obedient, to be ready for every good work. 3.8, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And finally in 3.14 it says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good work. It's, it's very clear, isn't it, when you look at scripture, that good works are never the basis for salvation. 
But they're the evidence of salvation. They're the evidence of salvation. Well, let's kind of summarize salvation. Our need. We're depraved. We're sinners. Guilty. Enslaved. The initiative was God in his gracious mercy. He reached out to us. He is the one. The grounds for salvation is not our good works, not our righteousness, but God's mercy in the cross of Jesus Christ. We're saved as the Spirit of God enters into us, as he renews us, regenerates us, cleanses us from all sin. The goal is it would have inheritance, eternal life. One day, unblemished walk with God, unbroken fellowship, in the evidence that we practice good works. Our lifestyle should point people to Jesus Christ. Our lifestyle should be free of sinful passions. Again, we will sin, but we should sin much less. Scripture is clear. If we believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we're saved. We're no longer condemned. If there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ, if you never trusted Christ, we're condemned. But if we're saved, no condemnation. Are you saved? Has it been a point in your life where you recognized that you're a sinner, that you need Jesus Christ? For those of us who profess to be believers, does our life reflect Jesus Christ? God's truth leads to godliness. Our lives should reflect the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplace, in the world. Because of that, instead of saying, once saved, always saved, I like it. Once saved, always changed. Because the Spirit of God who lives within us as believers is powerful. He is able, far more able than we to live the godly life. It is Him in us that enables us to walk with God, to live for Him. Finishing up, I just want to, there are, Paul talks a lot about uh, different things. He gives some miscellaneous instructions and uh, then he gives some greetings to people. But I'll just, I'll just finish up with, with the fact that he says for them to avoid controversies, lay off the dissension, the quarrels. And again, he talks about a person who stirs up division should be talked to. If he chooses not to follow, you talk to him again. Titus basically says, discipline. Discipline those contentious people. Confront them alone the first time. Confront them, secondly, with witnesses. And thirdly, bring them before the church. Well, this great book, 
it ends, well, again, reminder in verse 14, to do good works. Does your life, does my life, reflect Jesus Christ? Have we turned from immorality? Titus 2, verses 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us for himself, of people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for all that we have in Christ Jesus. If we know Jesus Christ today as our Savior, Father, thank you for your spirit that lives within. Thank you, Father, for the freedom from condemnation. Thank you, Father, that it's all mercy and grace. We just ask, Father, that you would continue to work in our lives, Lord, that we might seek to do good works, not for salvation, Father, but as evidence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.